Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. In less than five months, they had traveled 2,500 miles, during the last 1,800 of which they had had but five days rest. When they arrived at Skagway, they were on their last legs. They could barely keep the traces taut, and on the downgrades just managed to keep out of the way of the sled. The drivers confidently expected a long stopover, but so many were the men who had rushed into the Klondike, and so many were the sweethearts, wives, and kin that had not rushed in, that the congested mail was taking on alpine proportions. Also, there were official orders. Fresh batches of Hudson Bay dogs were to take the place of those worthless for the trail. The worthless ones were to be got rid of, and since dogs count for little against dollars, they were to be sold. Three days passed, by which time Buck and his mates found how really tired and weak they were. Then on the morning of the fourth day, two men from the States came along and bought them, harness and all, for a song. The men addressed each other as Hal and Charles. Both men were manifestly out of place, and why such as they should adventure the North is part of the mystery of things that passes understanding. Buck heard the chaffering, saw the money pass between the man and the government agent, and knew that the Scotch half-breed and the mail train drivers were passing out of his life on the heels of Perrault and Francois and the others who had gone before. When driven with his mates to the new owner's camp, Buck saw a slipshod and slovenly affair, tent half-stretched, dishes unwashed, everything in disorder. Also, he saw a woman, Mercedes, the men called her. She was Charles's wife and Hal's sister, a nice family party. Buck watched them apprehensively as they proceeded to take down the tent and load the sled. There was a great deal of effort about their manner, but no business-like method. Charles and Hal bought six outside dogs. These, added to the original team, brought the team up to 14. But the outside dogs, though practically broken in since their landing, did not amount to much. With the newcomers hopeless and forlorn, and the old team worn out by 2,500 miles of continuous trail, the outlook was anything but bright. In the nature of Arctic travel, there was a reason why 14 dogs should not drag one sled, and that was that one sled could not carry the food for 14 dogs. But Charles and Hal did not know this. Buck felt vaguely that there was no depending upon these two men and the woman, they did not know how to do anything, and as the days went by, it became apparent that they could not learn. They were slack in all things, without order or discipline. Some days, they did not make ten miles. On other days, they were unable to get started at all, and on no day did they succeed in making more than half the distance used by the men as a basis in their dog food computation. It was inevitable that they should go short on dog food but they hastened it by overfeeding, bringing the day nearer when underfeeding would commence. Hal decided that the orthodox ration was too small, 
he doubled it, and to cap it all, when Mercedes, with tears in her pretty eyes and a quaver in her throat, could not cajole him into giving the dogs still more, she stole from the fish sacks and fed them slyly. Then came the underfeeding. Hal awoke one day to the fact that his dog food was half gone and the distance only quarter covered. Further, that for love or money, no additional dog food was to be obtained. So he cut down even the orthodox ration and tried to increase the day's travel. It is a saying of the country that an outside dog starves to death on the ration of the husky. So the six outside dogs under Buck could do no less than die on half the ration of the husky. The Newfoundland went first, followed by the three short-haired pointers, the two mongrels hanging more grittily on to life but going in the end. By this time, all the amenities and gentlenesses of the Southland had fallen away from the three people. Mercedes ceased weeping over the dogs, being too occupied with weeping over herself. Charles and Hal wrangled whenever Mercedes gave them a chance. It was the cherished belief of each that he did more than his share of the work, and neither forbore to speak this belief at every opportunity. In the meantime, the fire remained unbuilt, the camp half-pitched, and the dogs unfed. And through it all, Buck staggered along at the head of the team as in a nightmare. He pulled when he could. When he could no longer pull, he fell down and remained down till blows from whip or club drove him to his feet again. It was heartbreaking. Only Buck's heart was unbreakable. The man in the red sweater had proved that. There came a day when Billy, the good-natured, fell and could not rise. Hal took the axe and knocked Billy on the head as he lay in the traces, then cut the carcass out of the harness and dragged it to one side. Buck saw and his mates saw, and they knew that this thing was very close to them. On the next day, Kuna went, and but five of them remained. Joe, too far gone to be malignant, Teak and Pike, crippled and limping, only half-conscious, saw Lex, the one-eyed, still faithful to the toil of trace and trail, and mournful in that he had so little strength with which to pull. It was beautiful spring weather, but neither dogs nor humans were aware of it. Each day the sun rose earlier and set later. The ghostly winter silence had given way to the great spring murmur of awakening life, all things were thawing, bending, snapping. The Yukon was straining to break loose the ice that bound it down. It ate away from beneath. The sun ate from above. Air holes formed. Fissures sprang and spread apart, while thin sections of ice fell through bodily into the river. And amid all this bursting, rending, throbbing of awakening life, like wayfarers to death, they staggered into John Thornton's camp at the mouth of White River. They told us up above that the bottom was dropping out of the trail and that the best thing for us to do was to lay over, Hal said in response to Thornton's warning to take no more chances on the rotten ice. They told us we couldn't make White River, and here we are. And they told you true. 
The bottom's likely to drop out at any moment. Only fools, with the blind luck of fools, could have made it. I tell you straight, I wouldn't risk my carcass on that ice for all the gold in Alaska. All the same, we'll go on to Dawson. Hal uncoiled his whip. Get up there, Buck. Ha! Get up there. Mush on. It was idle, Thornton knew, to get between a fool and his folly, while two or three fools, more or less, would not alter the scheme of things. But the team did not get up at the command. The whip flashed out here and there on its merciless errands. John Thornton compressed his lips. Saul Lex was the first to crawl to his feet. Pike made painful efforts. Twice he fell over, went half up, and on the third attempt managed to rise. Buck made no effort. He lay quietly where he had fallen. The lash bit into him again and again, but he neither whined nor struggled. Several times Thornton started as though to speak, but changed his mind. A moisture came into his eyes, and as the whipping continued, he arose and walked irresolutely up and down. This was the first time Buck had failed, in itself a sufficient reason to drive Hal into a rage. He exchanged the whip for the customary club. Buck refused to move under the rain of heavier blows which now fell upon him. Like his mates, he was barely able to get up. But unlike them, he had made up his mind not to get up. He had a vague feeling of impending doom. This had been strong upon him when he pulled in to the bank, and it had not departed from him. What of the thin and rotten ice he felt under his feet all day? It seemed that he sensed disaster close at hand, out there ahead, on the ice where his master was trying to drive him. He refused to stir. The spark of life within flickered and went down. He felt strangely numb, as though, from a great distance, he was aware that he was being beaten. The last sensations of pain left him. He no longer felt anything, though very faintly he could hear the impact of the club upon his body. But it was no longer his body. It seemed so far away. And then suddenly, without warning, Uttering a cry that was inarticulate and more like the cry of an animal, John Thornton sprang upon the man who wielded the club. Hal was hurled backward, as though struck by a falling tree. Mercedes screamed. Charles looked on wistfully, wiped his watery eyes, but did not get up because of his stiffness. John Thornton stood over Buck, struggling to control himself. If you strike that dog again... I'll kill you, he at last managed to say in a choking voice. It's my dog, Hal replied, wiping the blood from his mouth as he came back. Get out of my way, or I'll fix you. I'm going to Dawson. Thornton stood between him and Buck, and evinced no intention of getting out of the way. Hal drew his long hunting knife. Mercedes screamed, cried, laughed, and manifested the chaotic abandonment of hysteria. Thornton wrapped Hal's knuckles with the axe handle, knocking the knife to the ground. He wrapped his knuckles again as he tried to pick it up. Then he stooped, 
picked it up himself, and with two strokes cut Buck's traces. Hal had no fight left in him, while Buck was too near dead to be of further use in hauling the sled. A few minutes later they pulled out from the bank and down the river. Buck heard them go and raised his head to see. Pike was leading. Saul Lex was at the wheel, and between were Joe and Teak. They were limping and staggering. Mercedes was riding the loaded sled. Hal guided at the G-pole, and Charles stumbled along in the rear. As Buck watched them, Thornton knelt beside him and with rough, kindly hands searched for broken bones. By the time his search had disclosed nothing more than many bruises and a state of terrible starvation, the sled was a quarter of a mile away. Dog and man watched it crawling along over the ice. Suddenly, they saw its back end drop down, as into a rut, and the G-pole, with Hal clinging to it, jerk into the air. Mercedes's scream came back to their ears. They saw Charles turn and make one step to run back, and then a whole section of ice give way, and dogs and humans disappear. A yawning hole was all that was to be seen. The bottom had dropped out of the trail. John Thornton and Buck looked at each other. You poor devil, said John Thornton, and Buck licked his hand. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.